0: And last week we uh, started with this text, but I wasn't able to finish my sermon, so some of you asked if I would, and so I I at first didn't know if I would have enough material left over to make a complete second sermon out of it, but we worked on it and massaged it some, so we'll see. Um, 2 Kings chapter 15, and... uh, we're picking up at verse 8, and I'm going to, I know we read this uh, last week, but we'll read it again, we'll read down to verse uh, 31, 2 Kings chapter 15, verse 8 to 31, let's let uh, let's pray before we read. Our gracious God and our Father in heaven, we thank you for the Bible and now ask for your help in reading and preaching and hearing the word that all of us congregation and minister alike would sit under this Word and love this Word and enjoy this Word and be transformed by it. We ask, Lord, that the Holy Spirit would feed us today. Give us grace, Lord, not only to be hearers of the Word but doers of it. We pray that the Holy Spirit would transform the church and the nation. Lord, we pray that these uh, historical lessons from The book of Kings would be valuable for us today. So, Lord, may the Spirit guide and bring the applications that we need. But first and foremost, Lord, glorify yourself in this. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, 2 Kings 15, verse 8, that's where I'll pick up. I, I use the NAS for those visiting. In the 38th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Zechariah, the son of Jeroboam, became king over Israel in Samaria for six months. Notice it's only six months. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, as his fathers had done. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel sin. Then Shalom, the son of Jabesh, conspired against him and struck him before the people and killed him and reigned in his place. Now the rest of the acts of Zechariah, behold, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel. This is the word of the Lord, which he spoke to Jehu, saying, you remember Jehu, "'Your sons to the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel.' And so it was. Shalom, son of Jabesh, became king in the 39th year of Uzziah, king of Judah. And he reigned one month in Samaria. Then Menahem, son of Gadai, went up from Terza and came to Samaria and struck Shalom, the son of Jabesh, in Samaria and killed him and became king in his place. Now the rest of the acts of Shalom and his conspiracy which he made, behold, they are written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel. Then Menahem struck Tipsah and all who were in it and its borders from Terza, because they did not open to him. Therefore he struck it and ripped up all its women who were with child. In the 39th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Menahem, son of Gadai, became king over Israel and reigned ten years in Samaria. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart all his days from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel sin. Paul, king of Assyria, came against the land. Menahem gave Paul a thousand talents of silver so that his hand might be with him to strengthen the kingdom under his rule. Then Menahem exacted the money from Israel, even from all the mighty men of wealth, from each man 50 shekels of silver to pay the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria returned and did not remain there in the land. Now the rest of the acts of Menahem and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Menahem slept with his fathers, and Pekahiah, his son became king in his place. In the 50th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Pekahiah, son of Menahem, became king over Israel in Samaria and reigned two years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he made Israel sin. Then Pekah, son of Ramaliah, His officer conspired against him, that is against Pekahiah, against him and struck him in Samaria in the castle of the king's house with Argob and Aria, and with him were 50 men of the Gileadites, and he killed him and became king in his place. Now the rest of the acts of Pekahiah and all that he did, behold, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel. In the 52nd year of Azariah, king of Judah, Pekah, son of Ramaliah, became king over Israel in Samaria and reigned 20 years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he made Israel sin. In the days of Pekah, king of Israel, tiglath pileser king of Assyria, came and captured Ijon and Ebelmeth meachah Genoa, Kadesh, and Hazor, and Gilead, and Galilee, all the land of Naphtali. And he carried them captive to Israel. And Hoshea, son of Elah, made a conspiracy against Pekah, the son of Remaliah, and struck him, and put him to death, and became king in his place, in the twentieth year of Jotham, the son of Uzziah. Now the rest of the acts of Pekah and all that he did, behold, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings, of Israel. Amen. Now, this uh, chapter really presents um, some difficulties, I think, for the average Bible student today. First of all, we deal with a lot of names, a lot of titles, kings. There's a lot of turnover here. Um, we have Zechariah, and all of this, by the way, is um, within the context of Uzziah's reign. I don't know if you noticed as we were reading, it would say, for example, you know, in the 30th year of King Uzziah's reign, in the 38th year, etc. And the reason for that is, remember, as we've said before, that the author, the historian of the book of Kings, goes back and forth between the two kingdoms. He tells you about what's going on in the northern kingdoms, and then in the ten tribes in the north, and then he'll talk about the reign down in the south, in Judah. So what we have just read is chiefly about the ten northern tribes, the ten kingdoms in the north, and all these series of kings. Now the reason for that is, you'll remember two weeks ago, Uzziah, we talked about him, and he had a very long reign. He had a reign over 50 years. Not as long as Queen Elizabeth II, but that gives you an idea. That's a pretty long time, a half a century that you had one man as king down in Judah. And so during that time, you see uh, multiple kings turning over during those 50 years in the north. Now, just to rehearse very quickly here, and then I want to make the main points that I want to leave with you as far as this chapter goes. First of all, we see Zechariah, who is the king in the 38th year of Uzziah, He is murdered by Shalom. Shalom then reigns. Shalom reigns only one month. In the 39th year of Uzziah, Menahem kills Shalom. Now, Menahem does reign for 10 years. But that's more the exception. After Menahem, you have Pekahiah. And Pekahiah, of course, also does evil. He only lasts two years. And another guy, Pekah, kills him. And after Pekah, Uh, You have Hosea, who killed Pekah. So we have six kings. You have five assassinations. All six of the kings, and and you have five households, by the way, and uh, you have all six of these kings, we are told by the infallible Holy Spirit that they all did evil. And so you, you have this tremendous instability. You have murder of kings. All the kings are wicked. What is this a picture of? What is the historian leaving for us here? Well, the the historian is giving us a picture of apostasy and decline. That's one thing we see clearly here. And with that apostasy and decline, we see, I think, a second thing, and that is instability. That with the uh, turning to idolatry and the remaining, notice, did you catch how the historian kept saying uh, that this king continued in the sins of Jeroboam, this king continued in the sins of... Who's Jeroboam? Remember who Jeroboam is? Jeroboam was the first northern king. After Solomon dies and the kingdom splits, you have Jeroboam in the north, Rehoboam, and it was Jeroboam who introduced the golden calves in Samaria and Bethel. Remember that? And because he didn't want to, he was afraid that the people would keep going back down to Jerusalem and he would lose his political grip on them. And he he was a shrewd politician. He was an evil man. He he was wicked in what he did, but he was right in this regard, that who you worship has a big impact on your culture. And he knew he was going to lose out if he allowed the people to continue to go down three times a year to Jerusalem. Their heart would be in Jerusalem. And he knew that that would undermine his authority, or at least that's what he believed. And so as a shrewd man... He introduces idolatry in the north in order to try and stem that tide. Now, from this, remember from last week, I gave you two points. Number one, which we spent all our time on last week, and I'll just rehearse quickly today, was this, that that we have the blessing of a stable monarchy in Jesus Christ. That is, one of the things I think we learn from first, second, second Kings 15 is that in contradiction, contradistinction maybe I should say, to this high turnover of evil kings, we have one solid king who is absolutely and perfectly good, boys and girls. That is, you live under a monarchy. You're saying, I'm an American, I don't have a king You have a king in Jesus Christ, um, dear American. (laughs) You do have a king, Uh, even in this republic, that Jesus Christ has told us after the resurrection, all power and authority has been given unto me. And that he has been given this power in order to what? To bring the nations under his lordship. His yoke is not hard, he's his yoke is easy, his burden is light. He's not doing this by way of tyranny. He's not doing it by way of violence. He's not doing it by way of coup d'états. He's doing it how? He does it by love through the power and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, through the Bible, through the teaching and preaching of the word of God. He uses that word to bring people to faith in himself and as they come to faith in himself their lives are thereby transformed and as individuals are transformed families begin to change and as families begin to change communities begin to change and as communities begin to change cultures change nations change this is how Christ conquers he conquers by laying down his life on the cross by picking it back up after three days by ascending to the right hand of the father sitting down at his right hand and reigning and ruling by way of his spirit through the word of God And this is how Jesus has been doing it for 2,000 years. Jesus said, my kingdom is like leaven. And I am leavening the nations. I am spreading the gospel year by year, Sunday by Sunday. It's not a straight line up. I'm not suggesting that. It's, It's like the stock market. It goes up, it goes down. The kingdom waxes, the kingdom wanes. But overall, over time, like the stock market, it generally goes up, right? So it is with the kingdom of Christ. The kingdom of Christ over the centuries, does grow, it builds, uh, 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 and it spreads. And we are told in Revelation 7, verse 9, that there will be an innumerable people, people without number, young children, as far as the eye can see. It's like going to the beach and you look at the ocean and and you see as far as the horizon will allow you to see before the curvature of the earth. So it will be with God's elect. The elect are not a small number, but that there is a great multitude, John said, that no man could number from every single tribe, every single tongue, and every single nation. So last week we saw, in contradistinction to, the instability of the apostate northern kingdom with its turnovers with violence and murder and coup d'etats there, there was this uh, stability that we find in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ um, is, has a stable reign. And I, I gave you several points. One, it, his reign is heavenly. I'm just going to review this very quickly. First of all, his reign is heavenly. It's above human ability to touch him. Number two, it is the Father who gives the Son power. All power and authority is given to Christ. Number three, we see the longevity of Jesus' monarchy in history. For 2,000 years, Christ has reigned since his ascension. And number four, it's an eternal reign. The Bible says it'll last forever. As long as the sun and the moon run its course, so shall the kingdom of Christ. And then I gave you some applications. Number one, this gives you real rest and peace in a world of coup d'etats, doesn't it? There is stability for your life. Um, If you are a world-weary person, I invite you to know Jesus Christ if you do not know him already. Because only in Jesus Christ are you going to find rest and peace and joy and stability and righteousness that you need. This is a restless world. It's a warring world. It's a sorrowful world. It's an unstable world. But in Jesus Christ, you can find all the rest and peace and peace. The joy and stability that you need, despite everything else going around you. Number two, the stability of Jesus' reign is so stable. The stability is, is found in him. Jesus says, all who follow him and listen to him are his wise builders who build their home on a rock. And so we see that you can have that stability by doing what Jesus says. And then thirdly, by application, we saw that if your life and your family are lacking stability, we go to Jesus Christ. We put our trust in him. You unite with a Bible-believing church and be regular in that church as a member of that church. And then you begin to read the King's word. You pray to him and have intercession with him. And you also keep his commandments. Now, I want to go on now to the second point. And the rest of today was the second point of last week's sermon, which we never got to. And that is, <clears throat> there seems to be a historical warning here of how idolatry, in, in, at least in the case of these ten tribes of the northern kingdom, The idolatry seems to lead to an instability within their nation here. Now, we have to be careful, I think, when we read this and we make these applications because, as many of you may know, that phrase, correlation does not always mean causation. What do I mean by that? Correlation does not always mean causation. I'll tell you a story by way of illustration. One time I was walking my dog at the Upper Glass Bridge Road Park down by the lake. And I saw the strangest sight I've never seen. Now, those of you who are into hunting, maybe you can tell me what I saw or why I saw it. But as I was walking my dog, I looked off the street and in the grass to the left was the head of a deer. The body was completely gone. Now, I had suspected poaching was involved, but I don't know. That's why I said, those of you who hunt, maybe you can tell me what was going on. But there was the head of a deer and no body, just the head. And next to the head, it was almost like a dream, was a cat lying next to it looking at me. (laughs) Now, that cat was thinking, yeah, don't mess with me, human. I did this. (laughs) At least that's the way it looked, right? Now, but you knew, you know, right? The cat did not kill the deer. <laughs> he just happened to be there after the fact. It just kind of looked like the cat was involved in this. But we know he wasn't. And that's what I mean by correlation doesn't equal causation always. We, we see that there is clearly here two things going on at least. There is gross idolatry and apostasy going on in the, in the northern tribes. There is also this upheaval in the life of the nation, this political instability. One king murdering another and another and another. All while Uzziah, who is a good king, remembered. Now Uzziah has his clay feet and he makes a tragic mistake. But he still, the Bible says Uzziah was a good man. He was a good king. He did him tragically. he He burned incense. God at the temple that he should not have done. That was for the priest to do and so he was usurping a priestly uh, prerogative and God turned him into a leper because of that disobedience because God is holy and he will be treated as holy even if you are a good man. But yet, he did give Uzziah 50 plus years, 52 years of stability, didn't he? Meanwhile, you have six kings turning over in the northern tribes. So there, there is this at least correlation, but I do think that there is reason to suspect causation. Now why do I say that? Well, we know that idolatry is what? Idolatry is false worship. Idolatry, boys and girls, can be committed at least one of two ways. One way is that you go after strange gods. You don't worship the true and the living God. You break the first commandment. The first commandment says you shall have no other gods before me. You, you can violate that commandment by having other gods. But there's a second way that idolatry can be committed, and that is you can also not only serve a foreign god, but you can serve the true god in a wrong way. And remember that that's what Jeroboam was doing. Remember, Jeroboam was not saying, I'm giving you a new god He's saying, I'm going to allow you to worship Jehovah through, these, through the mediatorial work of these golden images, through these golden calves. You approach Jehovah by bowing down and offering sacrifices to these golden cows. Does that make sense? So he, he, he was not saying, I'm giving you an entirely new God. He's saying, this is the God who split the Red Sea. This is the God who caused the, the river Jordan to dry up and caused his people to walk on dry ground. This is this is your God, Israel. You worship this God through these golden calves. That's what he was doing, and that was the sin of Jeroboam. That he introduced, and all these successive kings continued with. Well, whenever we commit idolatry and are engaged in idolatry, the 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 worship of a false god or the supposed worship of the true God in a false way or means, that generally leads to a low view of God's law because the first two commandments deal with who we worship and how we worship him. And and so the, the violation of this leads then generally to a low view of God's commandments. If we flagrantly flaunt the first two commandments of God's law, We should not be surprised if other commandments then soon follow. Commandments such as thou shalt not kill, for example. That is a low view of the law of God. When we do not have a, a high and holy view of God himself and his commandments, then what happens? We begin to have a low view of his law, and a low view of his law, I would suggest to you, opens the door to having a low view of the rule of law. And the low view of the rule of law leads to instability. Why why do I say that? Because when you don't allow your church or your nation to be governed by the commandments of the Lord, what happens? Everything then becomes a matter of power, doesn't it, and control. And so what we find here is that the kings of, of the north are reigning and ruling by way of coup d'etat, by power, by overthrow, by violence. Not by the rule of law where you have a succession uh, handed from one king to another upon the former's death, natural death, leading to his son as you do with the house of David in the south. Rather, you have instability. And now, the, the, the reign and the rule belongs to whoever can get power, and can murder and take control and hold their enemies at bay. And this often tends to lead to a culture of violence and tyranny. Now, there's a danger for our culture in, in that we have a Christian heritage. And so I think When the number of true Christians in the West diminishes, I think then it opens the door for an increase in lawlessness. Let me tell you, give you some examples from Jesus' words. Jesus said, You are the salt of the earth, speaking to believers. You are the light of the world. That was not an exhortation. He didn't say, You become salt. You become the light of the world. He said, this is who you are in Christ. But what was the warning that Jesus then followed that with? He said, if the salt loses its saltiness, then what? It's good for nothing but to be trampled upon by men. If the salt loses its preserving influence. Or to put it another way, if the church no longer is the true church. The true church is a preserving influence in the greater culture. But if the true church descends into apostasy and idolatry and turns away from the living God, turns away from the living Jesus Christ and makes up some other kind of Jesus, a Jesus who's a hippie, a Jesus who's your you know best friend, but a Jesus who's not the son of God, who's not very God of very God, a, a Jesus who doesn't pr- prohibit you from doing all kinds of gross immorality if that's the Jesus you embrace then what happens? then you are no longer a preserving influence on the wickedness of men Jesus said this he said you are the light of the world you don't light your lamp and put it under a bushel you don't light it and then hide it you let your light so shine before men that they would they would give reverence to God and that they at least, if they're not converted, they would at least be restrained in their wickedness. But when the church no longer is light, Jesus said, how great is the darkness. What we have been seeing, and this has been going on for 100 plus years in, in this country, and I think even longer if you add Europe, what's been going on in our culture is that the, it be, And it began with the church. This is why judgment always begins as we prayed, with the house of Israel. When the church was no longer pursuing a biblical view of Jesus Christ, and they were saying things like, it doesn't really matter if you believe in a bodily resurrection. You may be tempted to think, well, that's just a fine theological point. That's just some kind of intramural debate among those who go to church. But no, what is that? That is, that is idolatry, that is apostasy because what you are saying is you, the church, are free to worship God through the mediatorial work of this different kind of Jesus that I'm giving you. One who's not really God of God. One who is not God incarnate. One who didn't doesn't matter whether he was raised bodily on the third day or not. So long as you just try to be a good moral person. You're truly a true church. Do you see the connection here? Because remember, Israel is the church in the Old Testament. So they are a state, they are a political nation, but they also are the church. They are that's the visible church of the Old Testament, are those two kingdoms, the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of the ten northern tribes. And when they go into idolatry, what happens? You have this chaos that seems to follow. As the church has been declining in our integrity in our doctrine, in our life, in our faith, and in our practices. We are seeing a decline in the culture around us. How great is the darkness becoming in our culture because the church is not being the church. Listen, I'm all for fighting culture wars, but we begin by being the church. Uh, and I, I wanna, we start there because that's where God starts. Judgment begins with the house of Israel. This is why... You you cannot flaunt the fourth commandment of God and think, well, just as long as we get the right guy in the executive office at the White House, we'll be okay as a country. It doesn't matter, in one sense, who's occupying the presidency if the church says, we're not going to keep the Sabbath any longer. We're not going to observe one day out of seven and give it entirely unto God. Now, I, I say that because I do think it matters who we elect to be the chief executive of a nation. But as I've said many times, and I'll say it again, there's another sense of what difference does it make who is going to occupy that office in 2024 if the lights of the churches in, in LaGrange, Georgia, are dark on Sunday night? What difference? if god's people aren't hungry for the bible if if they if they can't even be sustained one day out of seven if they can't you know seek the lord for an entirety of a day in private and public worship we're not going to be able to hold back the flood you know like the little boy the little dutch boy sticking his fingers in the dam you know it might last for Few minutes, but eventually it's going to give way, and and the deluge. This is why we need you as Christians, who those of you who are Christians here, to be Christians, and and to avoid uh, apostasy and idolatry, and to not be hearers of God's word alone, but doers of of God's word. Um. You know, as Israel forsook Jesus Christ by having these golden calves, God the Lord turned them over to greater corruption. And so you have a succession of evil kings. And I would argue likewise. Faithful churches provide the stabilizing influence in society. And this is why we must call for a reformation of our own lives and of the church. We need a reviving of the church and a reforming of the church. Not only the evangelical churches, but also the mainline churches. Those churches that have closed their doors to Jesus Christ, where Jesus is standing at the outside and knocking. They need to open those doors again and invite Jesus back in. This means in their doctrine in faith and in practice. Now let me get, show you some biblical support and we, we'll close here for this. We see this other places of scripture. I, I mentioned the ten northern tribes, but we saw with Saul. Remember King Saul, boys and girls? And what did Saul do? Saul, he took a sacrifice to himself, didn't he? He, he failed to follow God. When God told him to exterminate the Amalekites, he didn't follow through on that, didn't? He saved the best of the animals uh, for himself, and he, he even spared the, the king of the Amalekites' life. Samuel ended up having to execute him. And you know, Saul justified him and saying, "Well, we were going to use some of these animals for sacrifice." And, and, and Samuel spoke and said, "Look, God does not delight in sacrifice. He wants obedience." And the disobedience of Saul led to Saul losing the kingdom. And Saul began to do what? He began to persecute David. And he he tried to do what was going on later in the ten northern tribes, holding on to power by way of violence. And then finally we see Saul at the end of his life even consulting a medium prior to his death. Romans chapter 1, we don't have time to look there, but maybe for an afternoon Bible reading, look at Romans 1. What does Paul say about idolatry? Paul makes the connection that idolatry is not an isolated sin within itself, but that God then turns people over to immorality. That idolatry leads to consequential iniquity in people's lives, and in the life of the culture here. This is why idolatry does matter. This is why the sins of Jeroboam that are repeated in this chapter matter. Because it was because they followed the sins of Jeroboam. They persisted in worshiping the true God through these golden calves. That they were led over to other types of sin and immorality here. You know, uh, sometimes as Christians we feel grief, don't we? When we drive and we go on trips and we see evidences of, of iniquity. Maybe you drive and you see these billboards you know, for uh, these strip clubs, and and it grieves you to have to see these billboards as as you go down the highway, and knowing what goes on, or even here in our own town, supposedly we, there's a strip club uh, in in this town, and and it, it grieves you just when you see the parking lot full, too. But um, or maybe you've lived in a community another community where there was an abortion clinic and you, and you think how tragic and how sad and you know what goes on in that building and, and it, it grieves you it breaks your heart to to know about this. But I wonder sometimes too, do we have that same sense of sadness when we buy, when we, we drive past churches <clears throat> and we know that the gospel's not being preached. You know, I think it, it says something that maybe, maybe pluralism has too, too much of a hold within our heart. It seems like we're okay with people serving idols, worshiping other gods, and we're not grieved quite the same way as sexual immorality grieves us or murder. Do we, do we, do we grieve Similarly, when God's first four commandments are violated, as we do as the latter six are violated, do we grieve when we pass by the Jehovah's Witness building or the Mormon tabernacle or liberal Protestant buildings? See, it's it's the former sin of idolatry that leads to the, the other sins and the instability. That is that it's not just correlative. I think there is a causation. And we ought to pray that God not only deliver us from the places of sexual immorality and idolatry, and or, or of murder, but also of places of idolatry. Let's pray together and think about that. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we thank you for the stability of Jesus Christ.